So Acts chapter 16, beginning at verse 9, and I'll read through verse 40, and then we'll go to Philippians 1, verses 1 and 2. Listen now to the reading of God's Word. A vision appeared to Paul in the night. A man of Macedonia was standing and appealing to him and saying, Come over to Macedonia and help us. When he had seen the vision, immediately we sought to go into Macedonia, concluding that God had called us to preach the gospel to them. So putting out the sea from Troas, We ran a straight course to Samothrace and on the day following to Neapolis and from there to Philippi, which is a leading city of the district of Macedonia, a Roman colony. And we were staying in the city for some days. And on the Sabbath day, we went outside the gate to a riverside where we were supposing that there would be a place of prayer. And we sat down and began speaking to the women who had assembled. A woman named Lydia from the city of Thyatira, a seller of purple fabrics, a worshiper of God, was listening, and the Lord opened her heart to respond to the things spoken by Paul. And when she and her household had been baptized, she urged us, saying, If you have judged me to be faithful to the Lord, come into my house and stay. And she prevailed upon us. It happened that as we were going to the place of prayer, a slave girl having a spirit of divination met us, who was bringing her masters much profit by fortune-telling. Following after Paul and us, she kept crying out, saying, These men are bondservants of the Most High God, who are proclaiming to you the way of salvation. She continued doing this for many days, but Paul was greatly annoyed, and turned and said to the spirit, I command you in the name of Jesus Christ to come out of her. And it came out at that very moment. But when her master saw that their hope of profit was gone, they seized Paul and Silas and dragged them into the marketplace before the authorities. And when they had brought them to to the chief magistrates, they said, These men are throwing our city into confusion, being Jews, and are proclaiming customs which it is not lawful for us to accept or to observe, being Romans." The crowd rose up together against them, and the chief magistrates tore their robes off them and proceeded to order them to be beaten with rods. When they had struck them with many blows, they threw them into prison, commanding the jailer to guard them securely. And he, having received such a command, threw them into the inner prison and fastened their feet in the stocks. But about midnight, Paul and Silas were praying and singing hymns of praise to God, and the prisoners were listening to them. Suddenly there was a great earthquake, so that the foundations of the prison house were shaken, and immediately all the doors were opened, and everyone's chains were unfastened. When the jailer awoke and saw the prison doors open, he drew his sword and was about to kill himself, supposing that the prisoners had escaped. But Paul cried out with a loud voice, saying, Do not harm yourself, for we are all here. And he called for lights and rushed in, And trembling with fear, he fell down before Paul and Silas. And after he brought them out, he said, Sirs, what must I do to be saved? They said, Believe in the Lord Jesus, and you will be saved, you and your household. And they spoke the word of the Lord to him, together with all who were in his house. And he took them that very hour of the night and washed their wounds. And immediately he was baptized, he and all his household. And he brought them into his house 
and set food before them, and rejoiced greatly, having believed in God with his whole household. Now when they came, <clears throat> when the day when day came, the chief magistrate sent their policemen saying, Release those men. And the jailer reported these words to Paul, saying, The chief magistrates have sent to release you. Therefore come out now and go in peace. But Paul said to them, They have beaten us in public without trial, men who are Romans, and have thrown us into prison. And now are they sending us away secretly? No, indeed. But let them come themselves and bring us out. The policemen reported these words to the chief magistrates. They were afraid when they heard that they were Romans. And they came and appeared to them. And when they had brought them out, they kept begging them to leave the city. They went out of the prison and entered the house of Lydia. And when they saw the brethren, they encouraged them and departed. And then turn to Philippians uh, chapter 1, verses 1 and 2. Paul and Timothy, bondservants of Christ Jesus, to all the saints in Christ Jesus who are in Philippi, including the overseers and deacons, grace to you and peace from God our Father and the Lord Jesus Christ. May the Lord add His blessing to this, His Word. As we come to Paul's letter to the Philippians, some may wonder why why would we why would we even bother to study a letter that is about 1951 years old? A letter that was written by and to people who lived in uh, another part of the world and in a very different uh, technological, social and cultural era than the one in which we lived. Certainly we think about there's been so much that has changed even over the past 50 years, let alone the past 2,000 years. So how could this letter possibly speak to us today as Christian believers in the 21st century? Well, this certainly is a common criticism, not only about Paul's letter to the Philippians, but, but even this in regards to the Bible itself. People claim that the Bible simply has nothing of lasting uh, value since it's stagnant, it's outdated, it's from another era, it's old-fashioned, and it simply cannot have any possible meaning or impact in our lives and can't really apply to us in our lives today. But we certainly confess that the Bible is not simply the words of men that come and go, but that the prophets and the apostles who, who wrote uh, the, the books and the letters that we find in the Bible, that they were carried along by the Holy Spirit as they wrote these books and letters so that they, what they wrote actually becomes and is revealed to be the very Word of God. And we know that if it is the Word of God, then it is timeless and unchangeable even as God Himself is. And so the truth that we find in the pages of the Bible and even in this letter certainly do apply to our lives because they have been spoken by the eternal God. And we also need to remember and think about the fact that 
Yes, we are in a very different world in many respects, but as we move into what uh, some call a a post-Christian culture and society, that is, uh, we've kind of had our time of of, uh, Christianity having a great influence in our culture, and that seems to be waning, and now we have people who are growing up uh, not knowing anything, uh, even about the basics of uh, what Christianity is about. So as we move into this post-Christian culture, we actually do have much that we can identify with, with our brothers and sisters who were there in the first century, uh, who were in a pre-Christian uh, era, and now we're in this post-Christian era, and basically uh, there's a lot of similarities, as we'll see uh, in our study of the, this uh, letter to the Philippians. And so it's important to keep these things in mind, that the truth that we will discover here uh, does apply to us, even though it was written to different people uh, a long time ago. And certainly, uh, as we uh, begin our study this morning, this is kind of an introduction to this letter, so we're going to look at the establishment of the church uh, in the city of Philippi, that's what we looked at and read in Acts 16. And then also just considering the central themes that we're going to be coming across in our study, which uh, certainly will challenge us uh, to live as saints in Christ Jesus in the 21st century. So first we'll consider uh, the city of Philippi itself. In Acts uh, 16, verse 12, Luke tells us that Philippi was a leading city of the district of Macedonia. It was not the capital city, it wasn't the largest city, it wasn't even the wealthiest city, but it was a, an important city. It was strategically located on uh, what's called the uh, Ignatian Way, and uh, this was a, a, a very important east-west trade route uh, that connected what we now know as modern-day Europe with uh, Asia Minor. And so Philippi sat right on this highway, uh, right between these uh, two key regions. And it also may have been considered, though, a leading city because not far from where the city was located uh, was the location of a significant battle in in 42 B.C., so 42 years uh, before, uh, roughly 40 years or so before Jesus was even born, there was this battle between Octavian who would become uh, Caesar Augustus, who was the, uh, the emperor uh, during the time of uh, Jesus' birth. Uh, so he was uh, battling against the allies of Brutus and Cassius. Brutus, Cassius, they were the ones who actually had murdered Julius Caesar. And, uh, and so now these, uh, these two uh, sides are coming together in a battle not far from where Philippi was located. Well, of course, Octavius uh, won... That battle and his victory was honored by the transformation of Philippi from, from just a Greek city, a small Greek city, to now a Roman colony, uh, as Luke makes mentions of also in verse 12 of chapter 16. Now the status as a Roman colony was very significant. It meant that Roman citizenship was now granted to all the inhabitants. It meant also that they were freed from paying taxes and tribute. They didn't have to to pay any taxes. And it also meant that as citizens, they enjoyed the rights 
of Roman law, which especially was important in regards to their property. The property uh, that they held uh, was protected by Roman law, and it was just as if they were in, uh, on Italian soil, uh, so that no one was going to come and take their property away from them. And so these were significant uh, benefits to being a Roman colony. Well, it's also that the colonists uh, who moved in were primarily uh, retired soldiers from the Roman military. And so uh, this was kind of a, an important way to you, you sort of take over a city, you colonize it, you infuse it with your own people uh, and with your soldiers, and that certainly has the benefit of not only maintaining peace, but also assuring that there was going to be allegiance to uh, the Roman Empire. Well, both in Acts chapter 16 and in Paul's letter to the Philippian believers, we pick up hints of of these kind of background details. For example, the word for chief magistrates in Acts 16 verse 35 is the same word that's used for military generals. And so these magistrates were essentially generals, uh, these retired generals. In uh, 16 verse 27 uh, we read about the Philippian jailer, and uh, he had supposed that the prisoners had escaped after this earthquake, and this jailer, likely one of these, also one of these retired uh, military veterans, well, he was about to fall on his sword, uh, which kind of a symbolic of, of dying a soldier's death rather than suffer the humiliation of being ex- uh, executed because he did not fulfill his duty uh, to guard these prisoners. Well, then also in in Paul's letter of Philippians, there are several military-related terms. For example, in uh, chapter 1, verse 2, and chapter 4, verse 1, Paul urges the believers to stand fast. And this was a term uh, which basically referred to holding the line of battle. You can imagine the general calling out to his soldiers, you know, stand fast, hold the line. Don't let there be any breach. And that's what Paul is urging the Christian believers, as we'll see. In 127 and 4.3, uh, he urges them to strive or, or literally engage in battle. And then in uh, chapter 2, verse 25, he calls Epaphroditus a fellow soldier. And so this is just a sampling that Paul knew his audience. And he used words and illustrations that they would understand. And here he uses uh, these mil- this military language. Another aspect of this background that weaves its way into Acts 16 and and Paul's letter is civic pride. And along with that, accompanying prejudice. Uh, The people of Philippi were Romans. And they were proud to be Romans. And to them, the Roman Empire was the greatest nation on earth. Now, does that sound familiar? Speaking about things in, uh, from in the 21st century. This is what they believed about the Roman Empire. It was the greatest place that anyone could live. And certainly having sworn allegiance to both emperor and empire and having now enjoyed the blessings that flow from, from being Roman citizens, well, in a very real way, Caesar was their god. And patriotism was their religion. And so this is why we see their kind of prejudiced reaction to Paul and Silas when they come uh, uh, teaching the gospel. In Acts 16, 
20 and 21, we see that these men, uh, this is the charge that's made against them, these men are throwing our city into confusion, being Jews. See, they specifically point out they're Jews, and they're proclaiming customs which is not lawful for us to accept or to observe being Romans. So he's look, here are these foreigners coming in, these Jews, we're Romans, we don't do these things. And yet they're stirring up confusion in the city. They're troublemakers. Well, it's also because of this sense of, of great civic pride that the chief magistrates were filled with, with such great fear in verse 38 when they learned that Paul and Silas were not just Jews, but they were actually also Roman citizens like themselves. Because certainly, as a Roman citizen, you had rights. You had right to a trial before being beaten and uh, thrown into prison. And uh, Romans certainly didn't treat Romans that way. And as we'll see, Paul will will use this kind of patriotic sentiment uh, that was very strong there in the city of Philippi. He'll use that in his letter to illustrate the theme of the believer's citizenship in Christ Jesus. And so, again, that that theme will reappear and Paul will use it and turn it uh, to point to the citizenship that they have in Christ. So here we have this this quiet Greek city, which has now been turned into a city of, of rabid Roman patriots, and it is now about to be introduced to the good news about a Jewish carpenter. And so Paul along with Silas and Timothy and uh, Luke, were also with them. They arrive in Philippi. Paul had desired to go further east. We see this in the first part of Acts 16, uh, into Asia. But in response to this vision of uh, this man from Macedonia calling them, come over to Macedonia and help us. Paul and the others instead headed uh, west. And they, for the first time, the gospel enters into uh, again, what we would call a modern-day Europe. And uh, the first city that they come to, again, is the city of Philippi. And it's interesting, because as you read the account here in Acts 16, that their arrival in Philippi and the reception they received there was, was really, in some ways, it was the best reception that they've received in any city up to this point, and, and also the worst. Uh, it was their best in the sense that they were immediately met with this generous hospitality and, and shown great kindness. And it was the worst in how they were treated in a city that had prided itself with Roman citizenship. Well, Paul, uh, Paul's typical practice when he would arrive in any city was to go to the, the local synagogue on the Sabbath day. But from what we see here in uh, Acts 16 verse 13 we can gather that there was no synagogue in Philippi, which meant that there weren't even uh, ten men, uh, ten Jewish men in the city. Uh, ten was, the, uh, was the, the least amount that you needed uh, in order to establish a synagogue. So there weren't even ten men uh, in this city, ten Jewish men in the city. Uh, Paul and the others instead, though, they, there wasn't a synagogue, but they figured there was probably a place that people gathered uh, to pray. And so they went outside the city near this riverside and they saw this place of prayer. And there they met several women uh, and shared the gospel with them. And now these women uh, were likely Gentile God-fearers, that they were Gentiles who, uh, non-Jewish 
who had basically converted to the religion of the Jews. Luke tells us in verse 14 that one woman in particular responded to the gospel most positively, the Lord having opened her heart to believe. And so this Lydia of Thyatira, herself a a non-native of Philippi, she was a a seller of purple uh, purple fabric, that we're told here. Now this might indicate, along with her very generous offer of hospitality to these missionaries, that she was perhaps a woman of some means. And it's possible, there's no mention of her husband, and the fact that when she believed, she also had her, uh, her household baptized. So it's possible that she was a widow. Uh, and that she had uh, some means to be able to provide for uh, the missionaries in this way. Well, trouble started for the missionaries when a slave girl uh, began following them around the city, declaring, verse 17, that these men are bondservants of the Most High God, who are proclaiming to you the way of salvation. Now, this girl knew this, not because she had heard and believed the gospel, but because she was possessed by a spirit of divination. It was similar to the evil spirits which uh, would acknowledge the true identity of Jesus, and, and yet Jesus would silence them and cast them out before they had an opportunity to, uh, to speak. Well, after a few days of being followed by this, by this slave girl and her shouting this continually, Paul grew annoyed. And so he cast the evil spirit out of her, in the name of Jesus, and a great uh, and a great miracle. And we don't know if this woman then came to uh, believe in the gospel. It certainly is a possibility, but we do know that her masters were not happy about this exorcism that Paul had performed. See, they had used this girl as as a fortune teller and uh, for profits, uh, for their own profits, and Paul now. By casting out this demon from her, Paul suddenly brought an end to their income. And so they were upset. They were angry about this. And as a result, and again, we see here that they play on the the civic pride of the people. These men stirred up this mob against Paul and Silas. And they they end up beating them severely with with rods. And uh, they... Uh, and actually, that they you know blow after blow, uh, they were they uh, these men beat Paul and Silas, uh, and then had them tossed into prison. Now it's interesting here that this this abuse that uh, Paul uh, received really stuck in his mind. Uh, he's called. You think about the vision he had. Come and help us. And he gets there. Yeah, there's been some positive results, but then suddenly they're beaten. Uh, for no no apparent reason whatsoever. And yet this stuck clearly in Paul's mind, even later when he writes his letter to the Thessalonians. And in 1 Thessalonians 2, he, he writes to them, telling them, already I have suffered and been mistreated. He said, you know, you know how I already have suffered and been mistreated in Philippi. Right? And so that he he's remembers this abuse that he endured in Philippi. And even now, as Paul writes to the Philippians, he's using uh, his own suffering when he was among them, he's using it to identify with them as they now suffer in similar ways. And we see this in Philippians 1, verses 29 and 30. Paul says, For for to you it has been granted for Christ's sake not only to believe in Him, 
but also to suffer for his sake, experiencing the same conflict which you saw in me. So Paul is saying, look, you know, you're enduring suffering. Well, when I was among you, you saw that I also endured such suffering. But even after this, this terrible abuse, Paul and Silas, though, were once again shown great kindness, and, and this time by the Philippian jailer. After Paul spared the jailer's physical life, uh, he shared the gospel with him so that, that this jailer believed and, and received eternal life. And the jailer and his whole household were baptized to, to symbolize the washing away of sins through Jesus Christ. And then in return, they washed the wounds of Paul and Silas and, and attended to their, to their needs and gave them something to eat. And so with this core group of <clears throat> Lydia and her household, the jailer and his household, and quite possibly the slave girl, and perhaps there were others, a church was then established in Philippi. And this church flourished greatly. In fact, it wouldn't be too long before the congregation was supporting Paul and his mission work, not only financial through financial gifts, but also with the support of Epaphroditus, uh, who was a son of the, of the congregation, as we'll see uh, later in, in Paul's letter to the Philippians, that he mentions this Epaphroditus, uh, whom they sent to minister to Paul, and now Paul is sending him back. And so they were a flourishing congregation, and they were very supportive of Paul and his ministry. And so as we turn our attention now to the letter itself, which was written roughly 10 years after uh, Paul's first visit to them, we find that, that Paul remembers the Philippians with, with a great deal of fondness and warmth. In fact, many commentators have noted that this letter is by far the most um, positive and encouraging letter which Paul wrote, written essentially as, as kind of a thank you note uh, for their generosity in supporting uh, the mission work, Paul is desirous to commend and encourage uh, these saints in Philippi. Now, this is not to say that that they weren't that there weren't any problems in Philippi at all. Uh, indeed, there were. Again, we mentioned persecution was coming from opponents uh, from the outside. Paul mentions this in Philippians one verse twenty twenty eight. And then in chapter 3, with, with very uh, kind of jarring and severe language, Paul warns about the infiltration of, of Jewish false teachers. And then in chapter 4, he encourages the reconciliation between two leading women of the congregation. And although the, the problems that we see in Philippi certainly pale in comparison to the, the problems, for example, that the, the saints and uh, Corinth or the church in Ephesus went through and endured, they still were significant problems for any uh, congregation of God's people. But it's clear that even though their problems were few and perhaps minor uh, in comparison to others, it's clear that Paul did not want these Philippian saints to be content with the status quo. In fact, if you would kind of read between the lines of the instruction and the encouragement that Paul gives, you see a, a subtle admonition to, to not take their eyes off of Christ and to not be puffed up with pride. 
And both of these snares can easily entangle any Christian believer or, or congregation of God's people even today. And so again, these words truly will speak to us as well. But again, the overall tone of this letter is very positive as Paul seeks to strengthen and encourage uh, and comfort the Philippians during a time of trial and suffering. And as he does this, there are two key themes that Paul sets forth, and we see these even in the first two verses of his greeting. The first key theme is the believer's identity in Christ. 21 times uh, throughout this short letter, Paul will use the phrase or, or some variation of in Christ Jesus. And even here in the first verse, uh, to all the saints in Christ Jesus. What he's trying to do here is, is establish the truth that they are in Christ. That is, they are members and partakers of Jesus Christ and the salvation that he graciously secured for them. <coughs> he also notes that they are saints. That is, they are holy ones. Not of their own doing, but because of the one who began a good work in them. In, in uh, verse 6. And because of the one whom we'll see in chapter 2 left his high and exalted position in, in the glory of heaven and then came in the likeness of man to be perfectly obey his Father's will even to the point of the painful and shameful death of the cross. And so they truly are saints in Christ Jesus. Even as we are saints in Christ. We are holy ones, called out ones. In Christ, we have a, a claim in Christ, our ownership, our identity is in Christ. It's not only our, our religion and our profession, but it is the very essence of who we are. It is the only identification that we have that truly matters. Paul will demonstrate this in, in chapter 3, he he will talk about uh, his, his lofty heritage, that he was of the tribe of Benjamin. He had the best education. He had a great a future in his career. He was a, a Hebrew of the Hebrews. But now, all these things, all these things, even which our own society values, like our family heritage, where you got your education, your job title, your, your uh, income bracket, all these things, Paul now counts as rubbish. As he tells him in Philippians 3 verse 8. He no longer defines himself by these categories. The only definition that matters is that he is found in Christ. And this is the reason Paul is boldly able to declare in, in chapter 1 verse 21, he says, for me to live is Christ, and to die is gain. Paul is able to say this because he has the confidence that yes, he lives, he has his identity in Christ now, and so as he lives, he lives in Christ. But even if he dies, he has the confidence that that identity remains, that he will still be in Christ. And so this concept of core identity of being in Christ, Paul will then illustrate by recalling, again, that, that civic pride of the Philippians. 
before they prided themselves on being Roman citizens. But Paul says in chapter 1, verse 27, only conduct yourselves in a manner worthy of the gospel of Christ. Now this verse, 1, uh, verse 27, is, is considered really the, by many commentators as the overall theme verse of this letter. And note here that the word for conduct yourselves is literally live as citizens. So Paul is saying, live as citizens in a manner worthy of the gospel of Christ. They have lived as citizens of Rome and, uh, and Philippi, but now they have a new citizenship. They have a spiritual citizenship, one that supersedes and surpasses all the others. They are citizens of King Jesus. They remain Romans and Philippians, even as we remain Americans and Canadians. But the earthly citizenship has now become secondary and subordinate to the spiritual citizenship of being in Christ. Their identity and our identity as saints and as Christians is the only lasting identity that we now possess. And so in this letter, Paul will remind us of this and he will challenge us to cling to that identity. Another aspect of this identity that Paul will emphasize here is that this identity and and citizenship is a shared identity. That is, Christ did not save a person, but He suffered and died on the cross to save a people, to save a holy nation to Himself. There are no lone ranger Christians. We are not out there on our own doing whatever we want to do, but no, we are connected with one another because we have this citizenship and this identity in Christ. And um, Paul uh, doesn't say here, he doesn't say, to each saint in Christ Jesus, as if they were individuals, but he says, to all the saints, plural, who are in Christ Jesus. They are together one body in Christ. Their identity and citizenship is a communal one. They share it. And this point is significant, especially for how Paul will charge them to live together in unity and partnership with one another. In fact, he demonstrates this several other ways. And uh, we see in verse 1, he begins not just I, Paul, but Paul and Timothy. Paul and Timothy together who are bondservants of Christ. In verse one, uh, in, uh, 1 verse 5, he mentions their participation or partnership in the fellowship of the gospel. In 1 verse 7, they are all partakers of, or sharers of God's grace. In 2 verse 25, Epaphroditus is referred to as a fellow worker and fellow soldier. And even the quarreling Iodia and the Syntyche in uh, chapter 4 are, uh, Paul here acknowledges, as having shared in his struggles and they are fellow workers for the cause of Christ. And then again back here in verse 1, Paul specifically calls out not just the people, all the saints in Christ Jesus of Philippi, 
But he also specifically calls out the overseers, or who would be the elders, and the deacons. Basically, he's saying, look, we're all in this together. Our identity in Christ is a common identity, a shared identity. And because of this, we must all work and strive together to live our lives to the glory of Christ and His gospel. Now certainly that is something that applies to us even today. We have this common identity in Christ. We're all in this together. And we must work and minister and strive in the ministry which Christ has given us to do together. Well, this then leads to the second key theme. That is, our identity is in Christ Jesus. And because of that, because our identity is in Christ, well, we must then live in a manner worthy of that calling. Again, chapter 1, verse 27, Only conduct yourselves in a manner worthy of the gospel of Christ, so that whether I come and see you or remain absent, I will hear of you that you are standing firm in one spirit, with one mind, striving together for the faith of the gospel. So they are citizens of Christ. And if they're citizens of Christ, then they must live as Christ lived. They are called saints or holy ones. If they are called saints or holy ones, then they must live lives that reflect that holiness. This is something that sadly is is greatly lacking in the church today. As it certainly was in the time of the Apostle Paul, which is why he's, he's charging them with these things. Many call themselves Christians, and they, they claim the identity of being in Christ, but they do not strive to conduct themselves in a manner worthy of that calling. Many do just the opposite, and they continue to live in the way of the world. But for those identified as saints in Christ Jesus... This simply cannot be. And so this is what Paul stresses in this letter. But how do we live then in in such a manner? How do we live even as saints in the 21st century? Paul will give several ways in this letter, as we will discover in the the study, but here are just some of the, the prominent ones that he emphasizes. And the first is that we must strive for unity. That is, if our identity in Christ is a shared and communal identity, then we must strive for unity in the body of Christ. Again, as believers in Christ, we are all in this together. Disputes, divisions, and and discord must be put away. Peace, even, even the peace which Paul notes here, which comes from God our Father and the Lord Jesus Christ, this peace which first represents the peace between God and man secured by our mediator, Jesus Christ. This peace is now poured out upon us that we might have peace and reconciliation with one another. And so we should pursue peace and reconciliation with one another. And this is what Paul urges uh, in chapter 4. This division, this disagreement between Iodia and, and Syntyche, it needs to be reconciled. Their quarrel is disrupting the unity of the church and is likely reflecting a bad witness to those on the outside. And Paul urges them to live in harmony. But 
He doesn't just tell these two women to, to look, get your act together, but He also tells everyone else. He says, look, you help these women. You help them to resolve their differences. You work out this ministry of reconciliation that there might be peace among you. You don't just sit on the sidelines and, and let them tear each other apart, but you get involved and you help them. And so Paul urges this it's, because it's a distraction. They need to resolve this. It's a distraction. It's, it's taking away from their purpose and the goal of seeking to glorify Christ. And so even in the same way, we must strive for, for such unity. We should strive for unity in our, in our marriages, in our families, in our congregation, in our denomination, and even across denominational lines as, as, as possible as that would be. Living in peace and unity with one another is what we have been called to do. Well, secondly, and certainly related to the first, is, is we must be humble servants. Humble servants of Christ seeking to serve one another, even putting the needs and the interests of others before our own. Now the theme of humble servanthood, Paul describes most beautifully in in chapter 2, where he speaks of Christ's example of of humble service for our benefit, for our salvation. He, He has this picture of Christ, the eternal Son of God in the glories of heaven, and yet He leaves all that behind and, and humbles Himself to take on our flesh and then to suffer and die on the cross for our sins. So certainly Christ then becomes the supreme example of this humble service that we should imitate. But then Paul also goes on to point out other examples. He gives the example of Timothy and, and Epaphroditus and even pointing to himself. As those who have been given, who have given everything to serve Christ and to serve His gospel and to serve the people of Philippi. And so this emphasis even comes out here in the greeting. Paul notes that he and Timothy are bondservants of Christ Jesus. How shocking this would be to to people who have come from a a city where they pride themselves on being free Roman citizens. And Paul is writing, we're bondservants of Christ. We're in service to Christ. We are humble servants of Christ, devoted to Him. This is actually one of the few letters where Paul does not state at the beginning and identify himself as an apostle. See, because his authority is not being questioned here, but, but he instead wants to stress this humble servanthood. In fact, even his inclusion of overseers and deacons, I believe, is, is in part to stress this to them. To stress to those overseers, to those elders, and to the deacons that what he writes in this letter applies not just to the people, but it applies to the leaders as well. And certainly if anyone is to be a humble servant in the church, it is the elders and the deacons who are to be humble servants. And so humble servanthood is how we are to live as saints in Christ. Then the third and final point of emphasis 
that we will mention as to how we must live as saints in Christ Jesus is perhaps really the greatest emphasis found in this letter. And that is joy. The one who is called a saint in Christ Jesus is called to live a life marked by joy and rejoicing. Now, it's, it's impossible to read through this letter and miss this point. It's all over the place. In verse 1-4, Paul offers prayer with joy. <clears throat> in one eighteen, Christ is proclaimed, and in this I rejoice. Yes, I will rejoice. In 2 verse 2, make my joy complete. In 2 verse 17, I rejoice and share my joy with you all. 3 verse 1, rejoice in the Lord. 4 verse 4, rejoice in the Lord always. Again, I say rejoice. Philippians is a letter of joy. And as saints in Christ Jesus, we are called to live lives that are filled with joy. But, such joy is not as easy as it sounds. And it's not accomplished by simply putting a smile on your face and, and looking happy. Again, we go back to the context and, and who Paul is writing to and, and the history of, of this city and this church. The situation in which they were living, in which Paul is even now living, See, they have suffered, and they're suffering persecution. Remember, when Paul and Silas first came, they, they endured abuse. They were beaten severely with rods and, and beaten to a pulp. But then, Paul and Silas, even at that point, began to set the example of what Paul now wants to instill in these Philippian saints as he writes his letter. Do you remember what Paul and Silas were doing while they were chained in a cold, dark prison, enduring much pain because of their wounds? Remember what they were doing? Acts 16, verse 25. But about midnight, so in the middle of the night, Paul and Silas were praying and singing hymns of praise to God. And the prisoners were listening to them. They weren't groaning and cursing as might be expected of those who were unjustly beaten and tossed into a prison somewhere. They were singing. They were singing praise to God. In the midst of pain and suffering, they were singing with great joy. And so when Paul writes uh, in Philippians 1 verse 29, when he says, For to you it has been granted for Christ's sake, not only to believe in Him, but also to suffer for His sake. And then Paul will go on to challenge them throughout this letter to, to rejoice in the midst of this suffering. He's not speaking of some high, lofty platitude. No, as Paul writes this letter... He has given them an example. When He was in their midst, He gave them an example. And even now, as Paul is writing this letter to them, even now he's in in another prison in Rome, awaiting execution. And yet the joy and praise to God continues to flow from his lips as he's trying to encourage and build up others who are suffering 
is focus on joy even in the midst of their suffering. Now this certainly is most challenging. Yes, to, to rejoice and praise God. Yes, we can do that. And we ought to do that and we love to do that. But to rejoice and praise God in the midst of our suffering? Now that is challenging even for us today. And, and we don't even face the kind of persecution that, that the Philippians and Paul were experiencing. At least not yet. But it's still hard for us to rejoice and be glad in the Lord and sing His praise in the midst of suffering. But this is how those who are saints in Christ Jesus are called to live our lives as citizens of Christ's kingdom. Now, brothers and sisters, this this we cannot do. We cannot do. We cannot do this unless we first receive the blessing that Paul bestows upon the Philippians and us right at the start of his letter. Grace to you and peace from God our Father and the Lord Jesus Christ. See, if we are going to claim citizenship in Christ and if we are going to truly strive to live as saints in Christ, then we must first be blessed by the grace and the peace which God so freely bestows upon us through Jesus Christ. The grace of salvation and the peace and reconciliation that Christ achieved between God and man as our once for all mediator. By resting in that grace and, and, then, and resting and trusting in that peace, we can truly live, even now, we can live as saints in Christ Jesus to the glory of God alone. May God truly give us the grace and the peace to do these things for His glory. Let's pray. Oh, gracious God and heaven, we do praise You and thank You for the great challenge of Your Word. And as we begin this study of the book of Philippians, we pray that You would have Your Spirit present with us to give us wisdom, guidance, and to especially apply the great truths here to our hearts. And that truly in this study we would grow, that we would learn, that we would grow in in our understanding of Your truth and how You would have us to live for Your glory. And we pray, Father, for the blessing of Your Spirit in these things. In the name of the Lord Jesus Christ, Amen.